a word before we get going here. This sermon, more than maybe most, is loaded with scripture, specifically with cross-references. My advice, if you, if you wish to track down these cross-references, would come in three parts here. First, just write down the reference. Don't try to chase down the passage unless you're really, really fast. Just write down the reference and come back to it later. Another idea would just be ask me, and I'll hit send on an email to you, and you can have the whole manuscript in one moment this afternoon if you wish. Uh, and the other thing is that, Lord willing, in a few days, the sermon should be up on the website. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I wish to bear an honest testimony before you about your son Jesus to uh, this dear church that you have, have drawn us into. And I uh, wish, Lord, to accurately handle your word. And I, I certainly mean well, Lord. I, I pray that you would help me and help all of us with the gift of illumination that you provide through your Holy Spirit to really see what's here. We can do this, Lord. Grant us, if we would not ha all have PhDs, which I certainly don't, grant that we might all pursue HCTs, humble, contrite, trembling hearts before your word. Lord, I pray that you would come now and Accompany the preaching of your word with power. May, may we not just preach the Bible in this church, but may we preach the gospel by expounding the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, it is my privilege to invite you to open a Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a red Bible in the seats, the text can be found beginning on page 744. 744 in the red Bibles. Daniel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We last studied the book of Daniel as a congregation. Hmm. Sunday, November 1st, 2015. And for those keeping score at home, that is a full 14 weeks ago. And we haven't been twiddling our thumbs um, between now and then. Actually, we've been quite occupied. We've been preaching Jesus and preaching the Bible. And during that time, for more reasons than it is wise to probably track down right now, we found ourselves laying aside the prophet Daniel for a little over three months. And we're now picking him up again today. Now, here's what's fascinating. A lot when I say a lot, I mean a lot of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches would be more than simply content to leave Daniel in the rearview mirror at this point in the book. I'm not speculating about that. Um, conventional wisdom even among elite evangelical preaching pastors in our nation today, is to act as if Daniel 7 through 12 doesn't exist. Um, one of the finest preachers in the country today once counseled me and hundreds of other seminary students in that direction about 15 years back. 
Brothers and sisters of Mount Evangelical Free Church, that is something that this particular pulpit cannot and quite frankly will not do. You might ask, why would a preacher avoid these six chapters of the Bible? What reason might pastors and churches have for steering clear of them? Well, many reasons suggest themselves. There are some reasonable explanations why these chapters might be skirted. I'll grant that. There are some reasonable explanations. But at the end of the day, there are no sufficient excuses for it. One of the more common defenses you find in the church today has to do with practicality. Practicality. Last week, we heard about parenting. It's hard to get more practical than that. This week, we're going to study a lion, a bear, and a leopard with four wings. Four heads, actually. I don't know about you, but I can empathize with the person who's thinking, I really don't see the relevance of this. Right? We can understand that sort of person. We could appreciate their hesitation as they're thinking about apocalyptic imagery. However, to conclude that apocalyptic Biblical prophecy is therefore irrelevant or extraneous or inapplicable to our lives. That doesn't follow. We learned this past August as we studied 2 Thessalonians that biblical prophecy is a tapestry of spectacular truths, but that the soon return of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece, the centerpiece of that tapestry. I'll say that again. Biblical prophecy is a tapestry of spectacular truths and the glorious appearing of King Jesus is the centerpiece. Therefore, if predictive biblical prophecy seems to me personally uninteresting or dull or inapplicable to me, then I assure you I am the one who is irrelevant, not the Bible. To read the New Testament, you might be surprised to learn that the soon return of Jesus, far from being a detached, pie-in-the-sky type of doctrine, is, if you'll excuse the pun, because I'm in favor of puns in the pulpit, the most down-to-earth truth you could possibly embrace. Let's ponder the unblushing New Testament testimony regarding the relevance and the practical impact of the return of Jesus to the earth. The second coming of Christ is relevant to issues such as patience and persistence. You need either one of those? James 5, 8. The second coming of Christ is relevant to attitudes like complaining and kindness. Stand in need of some help in either of those areas. James 5, 9. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Struggling with your prayer life? Yeah. Well, 1 Peter 4, 7 says that the second coming of Christ is profoundly related to our ongoing conversation with God. How about church involvement? Well, you should see Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 for this. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says there is a vital connection between the day of the Lord and your regular fellowship with the people of God in the local church. If you like an unshakable bond between the coming day of the Lord and every coming Lord's day. If there were time, I'd show you the connections the New Testament makes between a fervent belief in the second coming of Christ and the call of the church to evangelism, to gentleness, 
to holiness and to godliness. Acts 17, 30 to 31, Philippians 4, 5, 2 Peter 3, 11, and 1 John 3, 2 and 3. John Owen may have put it best in 1671 when he said, quote, approaching judgments ought to influence diligence in all evangelical duties. I believe that. So friends, end time study is relevant. Don't let anyone ever tell you any different. In fact, biblical eschatology is not a distraction from our mission. It's the very destination of our mission. Eschatology, end time study. Biblical eschatology is not a distraction from our mission. It's the very destination from our mission. How so? How could it not be so? Our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ who says, surely I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20. Don't buy the lie that mission and eschatology are these wildly unrelated entities. I don't believe that for a nanosecond. Neither should you. Biblical eschatology is not a distraction from our mission. It's the destination of our mission. We said a few moments ago that, that eschatology, Bible prophecy, is a tapestry of spectacular truth. Spectacular. And the glorious appearing of Jesus is the centerpiece. Well, both are going to be important as we study Daniel chapter 7 to 12. The, the tapestry, the whole thing, as well as the centerpiece of it where all of our eyes ought to f- be focusing. If the book of Daniel is known for anything, it's this vivid tapestry of spectacular truths. Uh, Beasts, angels, horns, rams, goats, the king of the south, the king of the north, the resurrection, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The tapestry is woven brilliantly, and it is woven thick. Carol King has nothing on this tapestry. Over these next two months, we plan to handle every last fiber of it. However, lest we get lost in the apocalyptic cloth, let's remember that biblical prophecy is a tapestry of spectacular truths, but the soon return of Jesus, that's the center of the picture. That's the center of the picture. So we will study the kingdom of Antichrist. We will. Probably more than you bargained for. However, woe to us if we find it more interesting or attractive than the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? First point today, from the perspective of the godly, the history of the empires of this world look like a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. From the perspective of the godly, The history of the empires of this world look like a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. Trusting you have your Bible open to chapter 7. Follow along with me. I'll read the first eight verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. 
Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a lion, with, the, with four wings of a bird on its back. Excuse me, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Well, go in peace. Amen. I'm going to see you later. Everybody square on this? Welcome, welcome to Mount Free Church. Okay. From the perspective of the godly, the history of the empires of this world looked like a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. Verse 1 tells us that this took place in the year of King Belshazzar. A rough estimate would put this vision then about 553 B.C. It's rough. 553 B.C. If you're placing it on a timeline of the book of Daniel, what we're talking about here is maybe 14 years, a decade and a half prior to that feast of Belshazzar that we saw in chapter 5. If you're placing it on a timeline, that's where it would be. Also of interest to English Bible readers is the fact that this chapter of Daniel, chapter 7, is the final chapter written in the Aramaic language. If you were to page backward and consult a footnote that you have in chapter 2, verse 4, what you'd learn is that Daniel 2.4 to Daniel 7.28 is all written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. The point is that in terms of literary structure, the way books are put, put together, that implies that chapters 2 through 7 hang together really well together, really tightly together, and that's what we find. In fact, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are similar. They are spooky similar, actually. Both are dreams. Both present a massive overview of the history of the Gentile nations of this world, or at least the high points. Both visions end with the coming of the Jewish Messiah and the destruction of these nations, as well as the ushering in of the kingdom of the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and the establishment of his own eternal kingdom with his people that will last forever and ever. Both chapter 2 and chapter 7 talk that way. Now, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are different in a couple of key areas. One way they're different is the dreamer. The dreamer in chapter 2 is a godless pagan at the time, Nebuchadnezzar. That's chapter 2. And through his eyes, these kingdoms look like a bright, gleaming, albeit frightening, statue through his eyes. 
But through the eyes of the godly court prophet Daniel, these kingdoms are seen for precisely what they are, a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. Now, sometimes we read this chapter and we just can't connect. Uh, It's like we can't find a touch point. But this isn't crazy. World powers today still adopt, for example, animal imagery. They do. Like when you see a bald eagle, what nation comes to mind? Ours. Yeah. Or picture a crown above a shield flanked with two lions up on their hindquarters. What does that remind you of, other than Queen's last album? England. Great Britain. So this isn't bizarre. We can do this. Nebuchadnezzar had a very similar revelation in chapter 2, and that means that the interpretation here should be anchored in, or at least informed by chapter 2. It's going to do some heavy lifting for us. Verse 2 speaks now of the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Now, we definitely don't have time to go there. Uh, I have footnotes and footnotes on this, but the, the four winds of heaven, I believe, is an image pointing to the sovereign power of God. Wind is mentioned 120 times in the Bible, the vast majority of those times. It is the power of God, okay? The great sea, also got footnotes here on this, and, and uh, I'll give you one anyway, Revelation 21.1. The great sea is a classic biblical metaphor for this present, dark, fearful, sinful, foreboding world. It's a picture of evil in the Bible. I'll give you one flag one example in passing. Revelation 21.1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That ever struck you? Like, what's John got against the sea? That's where my li- wife likes to go on, my life, my wife likes to go on vacation. The sea. No sea in heaven? Well, not that kind of sea. Not the ocean along the Gulf Coast of Florida. It's an image. The sea is a picture of chaos, of confusion. This is bedlam. This is sheer evil. And it's out of this sea that these four monsters emerge, each one different from another. Now let's look at each briefly. Verse 4, we read, The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings, And I looked, and its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt from Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 that the first kingdom in chapter 2 was was Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. It was Babylon. Daniel 2.38 tells us that explicitly. Here in chapter 7, verse 4, we don't have a head of gold. We We have a lion with eagle's wings. The lion in Daniel's day, as in ours, is the king of the beasts, the ruler of the jungle. It's a royal power symbol. In Jeremiah 49, 19, Babylon is specifically referred to as a lion, specifically. Furthermore, even here in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 33, remember remember Guy's sermon? How could you not remember Guy's sermon on this? Nebuchadnezzar is turned into a beast, and it says that his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and it says that his nails were like bird's claws. 
wings of an eagle. You'll notice, too, that in verse 4 here, the beast is lifted up, made to stand on his feet, and the mind of a man is, is given to it. We won't turn there, but the same thing happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 36. This very thing happened as his reason was restored to him. So you could at least make a reasonable case that there is a very strong parallel between the lion in chapter 7 and the head of gold in chapter 2. It's ancient Babylon. It's a king and a kingdom. It's Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. It seems then that the first beast is at least historic ancient Babylon. I say at least because it's possible that while these images, this image is fulfilled in ancient Babylon, it may not be exhausted with ancient Babylon. What I mean to say is that ancient Babylon is modern-day Iraq. And I think it's possible, although by no means essential, that there may be some present-day and even yet future fulfillment of this. More on that in the weeks ahead. Moving along to verse 5, we read, And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. A bear is not Pooh Bear. I mean, not, we're not thinking cuddly here. This is a, an animal of ferocious power. And if we see Nebuchadnezzar as Babylon, the winged lion, then there certainly is a case to be made that Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire that followed him is the, is the bear here. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 13, verses 17 and 18, Isaiah 13, 17 and 18, we read about the Lord's divine design in the judgment of Babylon. Listen to this. Isaiah 13, 17 to 18 says, Against Babylon, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver, and they do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb, and their eyes will not pity children. The Medes and the Persians fulfilled this well. However, I'm even less certain that they exhaust this prophecy. This is part of the reason it's taken me 14 weeks to get ready for this. One reason is that verse 5 says that this beast is raised up on one side. In two weeks, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 8, which is an explicit end-time prophecy about a ram with two horns and one horn higher than the other. Daniel 8, 3. I mention this because like ancient Babylon, today is modern-day Iraq, so too is ancient Persia, yet a people and ferociously growing in power. That would be modern-day Iran. And this lopsided bear and the carnage it caused in ancient times is just a matter of the historical record. However, I think we could look to the same people today, now Iran, and see unbelievable parallels the proxy war that's been fought in the Middle East and likely will develop into full-blown conflict, including them in the days ahead. More on that in two weeks as we study Daniel 8. Verse 6 says, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. In the interest of time, I'll just say that Alexander the Great 
The ancient Grecian empire fits the description well, very well. Once again, we see remarkable consistency between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. So the head of gold and the winged lion are Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The chest and arms of silver, along with the bear, are Cyrus and Persia. That means the belly and thighs of bronze from chapter 2. And this leopard are Alexander and the Hellenistic kingdom, the ancient empire of Greece. Now, as you might expect, I do believe that Greece well fits the prophecy. And yet, I get the sneaking suspicion that it in no way exhausts this prophecy. Just as the bear of Daniel 7 has a parallel in the ram of Daniel 8, so too does the leopard in Daniel 7 have a parallel in the goat of Daniel 8. And furthermore, the ancient kingdom of Greece is not the same people today that when when you think of Greece, you think of Athens, you think of southern Europe, this is a different geography, different group of people. I know the name is the same, and that's what's a little bit confusing. The ancient Alexandrian Empire covered a vast territory. A vast territory. Someone's dying a thousand deaths right now. I'm sorry. Asia Minor was the ancient empire. Today, that's modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey are perhaps a, a confederacy of Sunni nations. More on that in two weeks. Finally, Daniel 7 and 8 describe a fourth beast. And though we will not take time to reread these verses or even study them in a detailed way this morning, just know that the chapter 2, the legs of iron and then the feet of iron and clay from Daniel chapter 2 is precisely parallel to the fourth beast here. Precisely parallel here. The fourth beast is the empire of the Antichrist. Some believe that the empire of the Antichrist is Rome, a revived Roman empire in the last days, and that may be possible. I just personally don't think it's probable. As I alluded to back in October when we studied Daniel chapter 2, I believe that the kingdom of the Antichrist, the fourth world empire, is the historic Islamic caliphate. (coughs) I believe that. Which means... I believe that a revived Islamic caliphate will emerge in the last days and from this empire, not Rome, will ascend the little horn of verse 8. In the last days, who is the Antichrist? Much more on this next week as we pick up chapter 7, verse 19 with the truth about the fourth beast. I want to do two things as we close an application here. I want to preach the gospel and some encouraging application, I I hope. Let's wrap up point one. From the perspective of the godly, the history of the empires of this world looked like a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. Secondly, from the perspective of the godly, the coming kingdom of God in Christ looks like a magnificent reign of unparalleled majesty. From the perspective of the godly, the coming kingdom of God in Christ looks like a magnificent reign of unparalleled majesty. Do we not need some encouragement? This has been a little bit of a downer today. We need some encouragement this morning. 
How would you like to hear not only some news, but some really good news this morning? Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, read, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, I think this is God the Father, the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued, and came out from before him, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen is right. This is really good news. Jesus is coming back. For you fantasy buffs, Aslan is on the move. Hmm. The long Narnian winter of this present age is nearly over. I genuinely believe that the spring thaw is coming, and not just because Punxsutawney Phil didn't see his shadow last week. <laughs> I, I want Jesus to return in my lifetime, or maybe my kids. Certainly going to live that way and work that way. If for no other reason, then I want to be practical. The historic creeds have held on to the blessed hope that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And it's in view of biblical truths like this one in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, that we maintain such confidence and hold fast such a confession. Now, the immediate context of Daniel 7, put your seatbelt on for a second, includes a judgment. There are parallel passages to this one. There are many, and I think they include Psalm 9, Revelation 4, verses 2 to 4. I also think Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. I think it's the same thing. I do not believe that this judgment is the same as the final judgment, also known as the great white throne judgment. I don't think it's the same thing. This judgment includes a rebuking of the nations and a transfer of the kingdom to Christ, the destruction of the wicked and a blotting out of their names from the book of life, the uprooting and the, the upheaval of the cities of this world, physical destruction of man's kingdom and the wrath of God poured out. All of that's, I think, here. And then a judgment for those who know God and who belong to him. This is what I think the book of Revelation calls the first resurrection. There's a judgment coming in any case. I hope you believe that. There is a judgment coming. And if you wonder how on earth could that possibly be good news, here's my answer to that good question. 
the judge is willing to grant a stay of execution. Now you and I deserve, we deserve eternal punishment for our sins against an eternal God. Punishment fits the crime. You have to admit the punishment fits the crime. However, not only is the judge willing to stay your execution, the judge willingly underwent the execution. You heard it read for you as plain as day just prior to the start of the sermon. The words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 64, standing before Caiaphas in the Jewish council. The Jewish council. We should have known better. Jesus applies the words of the prophet Daniel to himself. He's not a good teacher if this is wrong. He's an absolute blasphemer. And he's a lunatic if he's wrong. He says to Caiaphas, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. With that, he was promptly delivered over to Pontius Pilate, was whipped with an inch of his life, crucified, died, and was buried. Romans 3, 23 to 26 says, For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The judge underwent the execution. And that's not all. On the third day, he rose again. And I'll admit it, if Christ is still in the grave... We are of all people most to be pitied, and we are still in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been. Christ has been raised from the dead, and the Son of Man now offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of a beastly world, mine and yours included. He loves us that much. And he invites you this day to come. By grace, through faith, I offer as on his behalf, as his ambassador this morning, that you would come. Come to Jesus, the Son of Man, slain for you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail. They will mourn on account of him. The return of Jesus, the glorious appearing of Jesus, will be simultaneously thrilling and threatening to us, to this world. Please listen to me this morning. Seek shelter in Christ now before you need to take shelter from him then. Believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. You will be a happy subject of this soon-to-come king. A kingdom that will not pass away. From the perspective of the godly, the coming kingdom of God in Christ looks like a magnificent reign of unparalleled majesty. Third point today, and we're done. From the perspective of the godly, the task of interpreting apocalyptic prophecy is as simple as approach and ask despite all your alarm and anxiety. The perspective from the perspective of the godly, the task of interpreting apocalyptic prophecy is as simple as approach and ask despite all your alarm and anxiety. I put those in quotations because it's directly from the text. I have to tell you, I've been meditating on verses 15 to 16 all week long. These truths have been feeding my soul and giving me encouragement that we can do this. We can, we can understand this kind of thing. Daniel 7, verses 15 to 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him, the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever, and ever and ever and ever. Allow me to draw our collective attention to the two A's in verse 15 and the two A's in verse 16. This is awesome. That's another A. Awesome. Verse 15, Daniel is anxious and alarmed. How could he not be? Do you blame him? It's going to get worse in chapter 8. He's just cashing in his chips. It is anxiety-producing and alarming to look at this sort of thing and to take it seriously. In verse 16, it says, he just did the next thing he could think of. He approached and asked. I take it to be an angel, probably. If you can't blame him in verse 15, could you imitate him in verse 16? Approach and ask. I can't tell you the kind of progress I've made in six months' time thinking through this stuff, praying through this stuff on my knees, fasting over the book of Daniel. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Does that apply to the study of the end times? Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Does that apply to eschatology? Yes. Jesus died to grant us the inestimable privilege to approach the throne of grace and find mercy and help in the time of need like when we're pouring over a book like this and any other situation too. In view of Daniel 7, 15 to 16, I have to believe that there is no good reason not to think that when Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he's not talking about things like this. From the perspective of the godly, the task of interpreting apocalyptic prophecy is simple as approach and ask, despite all your alarm and anxiety. Well, let's sum up. Biblical eschatology is not a distraction from our mission. It's the very destination of our mission. From the perspective of the godly, the history of this world's empires look like a horrific succession of absolute monstrosities. The coming 
kingdom of God in Christ looks like a magnificent reign of unparalleled majesty. And the task of interpreting this stuff, if you're alarmed or anxious, is as simple as approach and ask. Approach and ask. So next week is the first Sunday of the Lenten season. As such, not only will it be a communion Sunday, but we're also going to take our second step into this vision, the same vision that Daniel has. The truth about the fourth beast. Draw that phrase right from verse 19. That's what we're going to talk about. It's a sermon designed to sketch a portrait of the kingdom of the Antichrist. And if you can't wait till next week, my counsel to you is to do a deep dive into chapter 7, verses 19 to 28. That's all we're going to do next week. And all of your alarm and anxiety approach and ask God to help you this week. Bring something to the table and help us to work on this next week. That's all we're going to do next Sunday. Right now, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for an attentive congregation. This has been uh, tougher sledding today. Reward these folks with a Super Bowl this evening. I pray, Father, that we indeed, we wouldn't take ourselves very seriously, but we would take scripture very seriously. We do believe, Jesus, that you are risen and soon to come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that kingdom will have no end. We thank you that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. Thank you, our crucified and coming king. In Jesus' name, amen.